0: Hello, friends, and welcome back to the As a Woman podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I'm a board certified OBGYN and RAI, so I'm a fertility doctor. If you are new to the podcast, welcome. We are so excited to have you here. There are hundreds of episodes for you to go and search and do a deep dive so that you can learn more about your body, more about your fertility, or more about how to support others who are in this process you can go to nataliecrawfordmd.com and you will see that there's an option on the website for resources. On the resources section, there's a search bar and you can search and find any topic you want. So if it's embryo transfer, like this episode, if it's IVF or PCOS or endometriosis, it is all going to be there. And that's a great way for you to go back and see all the content that has been made both here on the podcast and on YouTube. So the YouTube channel is my name and we have video episodes as well. We have the podcast on YouTube, but we also have separate videos that are shorter, more bite-sized pieces of content. So we're here to help you learn whatever your style is. I also want to encourage you to sign up for the newsletter at nataliecrawfordmd.com newsletter, fertility in the news, weekly updates, recipes, there'll be some of my favorite things for the holidays coming out, and we have re-released some of the courses, so if you're really looking to deep dive into learning about your body, again, that's all on the website. Today, I want to talk about preparing yourself for an embryo transfer. Now, this may be a frozen embryo transfer, and that's probably what it is going to be for most people, but it also may be a fresh embryo transfer, We'll briefly go over the differences, and then we'll talk about the workup you need prior in my mind, and then lifestyle factors, questions you should ask. This episode is not deep diving into the protocols. I have an episode from a couple months ago that deep dives into all of the frozen embryo transfer protocols. So if you have protocol related questions, listen here, and then back up and listen to that episode. All right, so to dive in, the first thing when we're thinking about an embryo transfer, let's just go over terminology. A lot of people think that embryo transfer automatically occurs in the same context, the same cycle, the same month as an IVF cycle. And when it does, that's considered a fresh transfer. This is confusing, but that's how IVF started. So way back when, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, When embryo freezing was not as good as it is now, embryo freezing at the blastocyst state, 8, a 5, or 6 embryo, is extremely successful, meaning almost all embryos survive the freeze thaw. Well, that wasn't the case originally, and so embryos were put immediately back into the body at the time when normal implantation would occur. So original IVF, this is all that there was. If we back up IVF, in vitro fertilization, remember that every month you have a group of eggs that is released from the vault within the ovary. The number of eggs in that group is determined by how many eggs you have left. So when you have more eggs remaining, more come out every month. The entire point of IVF is to try to take medications, hormones, at different times of the cycle than you normally would and in different amounts to trick the body. We are now trying to override the normal processing system. So instead of just having one egg ovulate, which is what normally should happen, that relies on very tight brain and ovary communication, we break up their relationship temporarily, override the system, and we try to get all the eggs that are there to grow. Everybody has a different number. In general, population-based, you have fewer eggs as you get older because you run out of eggs. You're born with all the eggs you're ever going to have. Eggs come out every month. As the number decreases, fewer come out. But I am seeing more and more people who are young who have fewer eggs. That's a whole episode for itself about why that could be. Likely it is due to what we're seeing across medicine in all fields. Increase in inflammation, autoimmune disease, environmental exposures, food, lifestyle, what your mother did when she was pregnant to you when your eggs were highly susceptible. This is a weird world. That being said, just because you're young does not mean you'll have a lot of eggs. Just because you are older does not mean you will have a low amount of eggs. The thing that does change also with age is the genetic normalcy of the eggs. And I've talked about this before, but those eggs sitting in the vault since before you were born, they just degrade over time. So the older you get, even if you are the healthiest human being, your eggs are going to have more genetic abnormalities than when you are younger, period, the end. Does it mean that every egg is genetically abnormal? After age 45, almost yes. There's almost no normal eggs. Over age 45, we would have to send off 50 to 100 embryos to try to find the normal one. Does that mean people can't get pregnant normally? No, it does happen. But most everybody who does, it is under age 45. And within there, most everybody who does, it's under age 42. And under there, most everybody who does is under age 37. You really start to see that egg decline after age 37. But the initial part of IVF has nothing to do with your egg quality. It is all about trying to get the eggs to grow. One of my biggest pet peeves on planet Earth is the fact that so many other fertility doctors, you know I don't like to talk smack about my colleagues, but so many people will just make a protocol, the same protocol for every patient in their practice, and they will just power through regardless of what the results are, meaning... Somebody is well underperforming what you expect for them based on your AMH and your antral follicle count. I think you should get 20 eggs. We're going through the stimulation and we only see five growing and we don't even have a discussion. I'm not going to act like there aren't times where you would proceed. There are. There's always circumstances where you say, hey, we expect you could get closer to 20 eggs based on the pre-testing that we did and I am only seeing five growing should we carry on? But so often people aren't given that discussion. So I know this is about embryo transfer, but let's just say for IVF, one thing I want you to know before you start is what is your antral follicle count and what is your AMH? What is an expected egg number? Now every month the ovary does vary. So if we count 20 and you get 15, that's within normal range. But if we count 20 and you get five, that is not. So you want to know where's that range of expectation. So IVF is using medications to get these eggs to grow and then taking them out of the body. When you take them out of the body, we are considering that like the day of ovulation or day zero. They are then fertilized with sperm. Remember, eggs have to be fertilized within 24 hours and then embryos grow and develop. A nomenclature is important here. So let's think about zero day of egg retrieval equals day of ovulation. One is that next day where you can see if these eggs have accepted fertilization. Then they grow to day two, three, four, five, six, sometimes seven. Day five and six is the normal day of implantation. A blastocyst embryo on day five or six should be 200 to 300 cells It has expanded. There's an inner blastocele cavity. The outer cells are the trophectoderm or what becomes the placenta. And you have an inner cell mass, which becomes the baby. Before that, on day three, the embryo is only eight cells. If it's perfect, it's eight cells. Do you see the difference that occurs from day three to day five? Eight cells, 300 cells, a ball of eight cells, a cavity, a placenta, a baby segment huge, vast difference. The culture media requirements are actually really different to get an embryo from day three to day five. So again, rollback OG IVF, we couldn't grow embryos to the blastocyst state. We didn't have genetic testing. So we would take these embryos on day three, pop a whole lot of them into the body. I say the collective we, fertility doctors, not me. I was not practicing then. But you would throw a whole lot of day three embryos in somebody They didn't survive the freezer well, they weren't all going to be normal, they weren't all even going to make it to the appropriate stage, and you would just wish for the best. This is why IVF has this reputation of causing multiple pregnancies. Honestly, multiple pregnancies should be much more rare in a practice that is following guidelines. I almost never put two embryos inside. I almost never have twins from IVF. It does happen, but we are not doing triplets, quads. An important thing to realize, and the reason why I'm going through this is because some people are still having fresh day three transfers, and some people are having fresh day five transfers. The vast majority of people are having frozen transfers, but you want to know what, what you're signing up for, and you would be shocked how many people have no idea. Their doctor just does not tell them. They just get on the train. Day three transfers have much lower chance of success. Not all the embryos are even going to make it two days later. They aren't genetically tested at that stage. And if we think physiologically, they are literally hanging out in your body for a few days waiting to implant, which is not normal. Normally on day three, they would still be in the fallopian tube. I am a big believer, grow them to blast. The idea, here's my honest thought about why people still do day three transfers, Because they paternalistically decided that you could not handle not having a transfer. And it'd be better to put an embryo inside your body, charge you for the transfer, let you think you have a chance of pregnancy versus having to have the difficult conversation of, oh, I'm so sorry, none of your embryos made it to the blastocyst state. That's not a fun conversation to have, but it happens. And I, on the other end of that, would much rather not waste my time, my emotional energy, or my money and be able to say, gosh, okay, let's regroup. What can we change in the protocol? What can we do to try to get blast to develop instead of sitting here waiting to be pregnant for embryos that looked like trash on day three or had no chance of ever making it through? I feel very strongly about that because there are so few scenarios anymore where a day three transfer should be indicated. And most of the time it's because Either that team has decided you can't handle not having a transfer or the difficult conversation or their lab is not good enough to get to the blastocyst state. okay? So you really want to be asking why if they're telling you you need a day three fresh transfer. Why? So if you're going to do a fresh transfer, I'm going to only talk about blastocyst transfers. That's usually going to be on day five. Zero, egg retrieval day. One, two, three, four, five. It'll be on day five. Now, Before your cycle begins, if you're doing a fresh transfer, you need to have an evaluation of your uterine cavity. This can be an x-ray test, an HSG. This can be a saline sonogram. This can be a hysteroscopy. But somebody should look inside your uterus and make sure everything looks good. IVF is expensive. Embryos are precious. Things happen. People have polyps with no symptoms. So we want to make sure everything looks good inside the cavity, number one. Number two, if you're having a transfer in the cycle, we want to make sure all your medications are appropriate. That means you've been off ozempic for a couple months. You're not taking any medications that are contraindicated in pregnancy, so you've switched over your blood pressure medication. We want to make sure that your thyroid's okay, that you don't have any insulin resistance or diabetes, that your vitamin D is okay. You need to be taking a prenatal vitamin, which has omega-3 fatty acids, and folic acid. You know, these prenatals are so crazy right now. So many of them have methylated folate, which I like methylated folate, as Natalie, the human who is not trying to get pregnant. But if you're trying to get pregnant, the only thing that has been proven to prevent a serious birth defect like anencephaly or spina bifida, which are neural tube birth defects that they can cause inability for your baby to live, is folic acid. Now, folic acid is supplemented in some foods. However, so many people are not eating those foods anymore. We really want to make sure that you are taking folic acid, 400 micrograms at a minimum in a prenatal. If your prenatal has methylated folate and you love it because it tastes better, it's easier to take, it's easier to tolerate, buy a separate teeny tiny folic acid pill. They're easy to take. But you should be taking that prenatal for three months ahead of time. So you're on a prenatal. You've had your preconception testing done. You've had your uterine cavity evaluated. You know the game plan if you're having a fresh transfer. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to Quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. And now a word for one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. If you're having a fresh transfer, you, number one, are at risk of having more pregnancy complications than a frozen embryo transfer. This is important. When people Google IVF complications and they see things like preeclampsia, small for gestational age, preterm birth, those things are largely derived from a fresh transfer. And the hypothesis is because that pregnancy is implanting in such an abnormal environment, hormonally. Let's just look real basic. In a normal ovulatory month, you grow one egg. That egg peaks estrogen typically around 200 to 300 picograms. It then makes progesterone, and you get pregnant. In an IVF cycle, if you get 20 eggs and each egg is making 200 picograms of estrogen, your estrogen is through the roof. That lining has been impacted and grown differently because it responds to estrogen. So you have a higher estrogen environment and very often a higher progesterone environment. So we see neonatal outcomes are impacted due to worsening. I don't know if that's the right word, but the placenta does not grow in to the uterus as well. Also, what we see is that to me, there's very few people who fit this category because one, if you're doing a fresh transfer at almost all clinics, I'm not going to say all because there's a few exceptions, but at almost all clinics, you're not doing genetic testing. If you're doing genetic testing of the embryos, then you want to wait for those results. So you're not doing a fresh transfer anyway. I like genetic testing for a multitude of reasons. One, because people who are young and not getting pregnant when they should, especially if it's unexplained infertility, maybe they have more genetically abnormal embryos than they should. And I see this because if we don't know what's going on, we should not now suddenly presume you're going to be average. But most of my patients who go through IVF are really hoping that this pot of embryos that we put some in the freezer, that they are enough to help them have multiple children. And it has been proven to be cost-effective in studies. And it's also extremely valuable information for you to know what's in the freezer. It sounds amazing to have eight embryos in the freezer. If you have one normal embryo and seven abnormal, you're going to feel a lot different. And you might do something different. You might do another cycle. You might try to get more embryos. But you will also certainly only transfer the normal one. And if it doesn't work, you will be able to get to that next stage of your life, whether it's another cycle or something else, with much less money and much less time and much less emotional damage. Imagine going through seven failed transfers. So I think that this is just important. think about. But if you're doing a fresh transfer, you're not going to need genetic testing. So no single gene disorders that you carry on genetic carrier screen. For me, you're under age 35. So for me, the person who I consider a fresh transfer on is young, doesn't need genetic testing, has a clearly defined reason for their infertility like tubal disorder or PCOS, and really is only shooting for one child, doesn't want to get a lot of children. And, here's the last and, it doesn't have a lot of eggs. And the reason why is because the higher that estrogen gets, if we go and put an embryo inside, not only are we going to have some of those pregnancy complications because of the placenta, but we have a much higher risk of ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, and we also have a lower chance of it working because you have to monitor progesterone levels. So sometimes if you're shooting for the fresh transfer, you're checking estrogen and progesterone. And if the progesterone's starting to rise, you're not going to be able to do the transfer because progesterone opens and closes the transfer window. So then do you trigger the eggs earlier than you should and you don't get as many mature and you ultimately have fewer to work with because you're trying to get to the transfer. So if you're doing it, in my book, you're young, clearly defined reason, want one kid, and you don't have very many eggs. The other offshoot would be that you're purposefully doing a minimal stimulation cycle to get less than 10 eggs. You know my approach or my thoughts on this. I have an episode on it. For most people, this might not be appropriate. It is for some, but all these scenarios have to line up perfectly. And IVF is really expensive. In my general approach is focus on each part independently so we can synchronize that embryo with that lining. Because the lining is what it is on day five and an embryo has to be ready to put back in your body. And if you're doing a fresh transfer, everything needs to line up. So all the pre-testing, know what you're doing. You wanna make sure they're checking estrogen and progesterone on trigger day, that your progesterone's not rising too much, that your lining still looks good, that it's nice and trilaminar hasn't become homogenous. If it has, that maybe is not a good sign for a fresh transfer. If you're doing a frozen embryo transfer, you have more wiggle room because there's a gap in between your cycles. And if I know we're doing a frozen transfer because we want to synchronize, we want to get our genetics back, after the retrieval, your body's healing, your hormone levels drop, With frozen embryo transfers, you don't see the same complications like small for gestational age and preterm birth that are some of the most worrisome. We still do see across the board in embryo transfers or IVF in general, a higher risk of high blood pressure of pregnancy than in people who don't. And that's likely placenta-derived, but maybe it's also population-specific and People who are having their first baby are at a higher risk of that than other people, but we are decreasing some of the risks by doing a frozen transfer. We are incredibly changing the ballgame by decreasing OHSS. That can be life-threatening. You can get very sick from that, and that is made much worse if you get pregnant but I'm a controlling girl and you guys know this because I like to control for things. So this gives me the opportunity to check your uterus after the IVF cycle and to walk through, did we get enough embryos to meet our goal? Do we need to consider another cycle? And think about the different protocols that exist for the frozen transfer. Are you a good candidate for a modified natural where we ovulate and grow the lining in a more natural way? Do you have unexplained or endo or adno, and should we do a controlled cycle with some Lupron suppression. Really try to get that immune environment more regulated before we put an embryo inside. It also allows synchrony of day six embryos and the transfer. And this is just an important nuance. Day six embryos are day five embryos. They just took six days to get to the day five state. So when you're doing a fresh embryo transfer, you have to put the embryo back on day five because That's when the uterus is ready based on progesterone exposure. If you are doing a frozen transfer, you now could put a day six embryo in. It took it a little bit longer to get to that stage. We think in nature, this embryo is not going to be able to implant fully, might be a chemical pregnancy, but now it's frozen and I can put it in. And so it took a little bit longer to get there, but we allow synchrony of the uterus, in a safer environment, a more controlled environment, and if the lining doesn't look great, the embryo frozen, we can grow it out longer. A good IVF lab should not be afraid that your embryos are going to be frozen and then thawed and something get damaged along the way. Survival rates with blastocysts and the freeze thaw, truly you should be quoted 98 to 99%. I don't remember the last time an embryo didn't survive the freeze thaw in our practice. I don't remember. Years. So I think that that's also important. If somebody is saying, well, there's such a risk of freezing them, then maybe they won't survive the thaw. That's a big red flag to me because that's just not true unless we don't trust our lab. Same thing if they're telling you the biopsy is going to damage the embryo if you're doing genetic testing. Not true. We know that. But if it is to them or in their lab or they're worried about it, red flag. Red flag. So if you're doing a frozen transfer, one thing I think is nice is that your body gets to get a little bit back to normal after the egg retrieval. Importantly, when you walk out of the egg retrieval, if you're doing a frozen transfer, I want you to know your next step. Meaning, hey, am I starting birth control? Am I calling you my period? Am I coming in? Do I need more testing? Do I need blood work? A uterine evaluation? Are we waiting on genetics? When do I contact you next? That's probably one of the number one things that delays people in this process is they miss almost a whole month because nobody told them what to do next. Or because the burden is all on the patient. So, you want to know what to do next. Then you want to know what protocol you're going to have. Again, listen to the other episode to hear pros and cons so that you can be knowledgeable about it. How many embryos should be transferred? This is very clear that if they're genetically tested, one, across all ages, I have been a patient, I have had many pregnancy losses, I know what it feels like to be behind. If we're genetically testing our embryos, there is still some level of embryo competency that is playing a role, but there is also the body and the uterine environment. And I do not think it is smart. To put two of those precious embryos in the same environment, especially as we're still trying to figure out what may be the best for you. So one embryo is very standard if genetically tested. If they are untested embryos, it's still recommended to do one, especially if you're under age 37. Let's just remember if you're putting multiple embryos in, you're asking them to compete against each other to get that placenta to grow in. when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. But let's get through our checklist before the transfer. So Okay, you still need a uterine cavity evaluation. You need to know your protocol. The same preconception testing, I want an updated thyroid. I want to make sure your vitamin D is okay. I want to make sure you're not on any medications that you shouldn't be taking. And I want to make sure that you're on a prenatal and that everything is set to go for the transfer. Now, mindset-wise and lifestyle, this is really what everybody wants to know. What do I need to be doing for my body to prepare Please remember that people get pregnant all the time when they're doing all kinds of crazy things. So by no means is anything a you can't get pregnant if you don't do these things. That being said, if you have infertility, if you're going through IVF, if you're going through a transfer, you're spending money, resources, physical, emotional energy that other people don't have to. So I think it is very reasonable to look at the data and want to optimize your outcome. Your body needs to be in a place where it's convinced that being pregnant makes sense. So really, it needs to not be over exerting energy, over intake. So so often I see people who are still calorie restricting, trying to lose weight, over exercising, training for a marathon while we're going through this process. You will have restrictions for IVF because your ovaries are growing. If you're doing a fresh transfer, those restrictions are going to stay for a long time because the ovaries are going to stay big. So if you are a big exerciser, I have some athletes who are patients and telling them to limit working out or cut it back, that's a big deal because that's how they manage stress and that's their career. But if you're one of those people A frozen transfer, 100% makes sense for you because you'll recover from the hardest part, which is the IVF. That's when your hormones are the most changed. And that is when you're at the biggest risk of ovarian torsion or your ovaries twisting in your body, which could be a surgical emergency. In a transfer, you really shouldn't have very many limitations. And this is a very big debate in the field, I guess. Now, if you have a modified natural, you have a really big ovary... It might be different, but for the most part, we want your body to be a happy place. We want it not overexerting your energy. So you still need excellent sleep. Take your vitamins. Try to decrease your stress. I tell patients still work out. This maybe isn't the time to be trying to get a new personal best or to be really maxing out on reps because those things, by the nature of what they are, purposely strain your body, right? You're straining your muscles to break them down so they can rebuild. We don't want your body, your brain, your brain is a human brain and primitive human life didn't do what we do now. So if it sees all this muscle breakdown and this calorie restriction. It starts saying, oh my gosh, are, are we running? Are we on the move? Is there a war? Is there a famine? And it starts going into this stress mode that maybe is not the best place to be pregnant. So we want you to take care of your body in a nourishing way. Healthy foods, fruits, veggies, whole grains, really try to limit the things that could have weird stuff in them. Your processed meats, your processed foods, sugars that are added, and by no means does this mean never, right? But if you're making good choices on the majority of days, then on somebody's birthday, not a big deal. But make good choices most of the time so you're getting lots of good nutrition from your food because that is also a way that our body gets stressed from what we intake. Alcohol, marijuana, cigarettes, nope. Things like acupuncture, that can be very helpful, but it's not mandatory. It is just as helpful as sham acupuncture. That doesn't mean that those aren't important. Both of those scenarios are better than nothing. So stress reduction has been shown to be helpful. I always say it depends on you, and everybody's going to respond different to acupuncture, so I don't like somebody to try it first time the day of the transfer or right before. But if you try it and you like it, that can be something great to add in. I certainly have patients who need it scheduled in their day, they're weak in order to go, but know that you can get the same stress reduction from understanding your body, whether it's meditation, really calm yoga, a walk outside with the birds, sitting on the back porch, journaling, therapy. There's a lot of different things you can do. So figure out what brings you that uh, feeling and then lean into them. I also think there is something to be said to tell people in your life who are very close to you. You do not have to share your story on Instagram. You don't have to be a fertility blogger. You don't have to do any of that. But telling your best friend can be really powerful because they can't support you if they don't know what you're going through. Not every embryo is going to implant. If you are under age 35 and you have not genetically tested your embryo, you are going to have usually between a 40 to 50% chance of success. If it's genetically tested, Typically, it's going to be 65 to 70% in that age range. Neither of those numbers are 100. Not every transfer works. One of the hardest things about my job is that I don't have 100% success for every transfer. Now, many patients have great success on the cumulative because I've got patients who listen and are on a journey. And we listen to their body and we make modifications and we personalize treatment to get to where we need to go. But it's not always on the first time. And if we're talking about preparing for embryo transfer, so many people are certain that IVF will work for them on the first transfer, that they are so devastated that it doesn't, they can't even move on. And we know from studies that emotional distress is the number one reason why people drop out of fertility treatment. Same thing with baby two. If the first transfer worked and you're coming back to me for baby two and now we do a second transfer and it doesn't, it doesn't mean that something's now wrong. Not every embryo has the ability to become a baby and that's really important to wrap our mind around it. Cumulative live birth rates for genetically tested embryos after one transfer, 65%. After the second transfer, 88%. After the third, 95%. Recurrent implantation failure is rare, 5%, or not common at least. None of those cycles had changed protocols, wasn't the uterus, it was just putting a different embryo inside. That should make you feel reassured. I'm a planner though, and so because every transfer is not going to work, I think one, it's really helpful to know what you have in the bank to know what your game plan is going to be if it doesn't work. Are you going to take time off, go into another transfer? Studies are not supporting doing ERA tests before the first or the second transfer. It really should be reserved for the population of recurrent implantation failure because in other populations, it doesn't show a benefit and potentially or is proven to show harm, lower pregnancy rates. So, there are still clinics out here doing ERAs before the first transfer in every patient. So the best way to prepare yourself is setting your expectations. If you're running a marathon or are you running a 5K? How old are you? What's your AMH and your intral count? How many normal embryos do you expect for the IVF process? How many kids does that likely average? And do you need to do more cycles? Are you doing a fresh or frozen transfer? If you're doing a fresh Have you done all of the evaluation before the cycle started? If you're doing a frozen, make sure you do it then. Are you monitoring hormone levels during a fresh? If you're doing a fresh, why? Does it make sense? If you're doing a day three, why, why, why? If you are doing genetic testing, what's your next step? Are you waiting for the results? There are so many different scenarios in here and having a team that really works with you personalizing the process is super important. What you need to do to take care of yourself is so much easier said than done. Support groups. You can find great ones online. You can find them on Resolve. You can find them in your town. You can lean on your partner. I think it's so great to give your partner a task, whether it's managing the calendar or being in charge of medications or something. One of my patients had her partner Answer the phone for some of the phone calls so that they had to be the one responsible for receiving that pregnancy test news. Lean on people and let them support you. Take care of yourself. Don't just take care of yourself to get pregnant. Take care of yourself because you deserve it. Put your body in a healthy, happy state. Stop putting toxins in your body. Stop stressing yourself out. Stop not sleeping. Allow yourself to get to the place where you understand that you deserve to be taken care of and we are making it a good environment so that hopefully this embryo will implant. The last thing about preparing for the embryo transfer is going to be, how do you get your results and what happens next? Does your doctor call you? Does a nurse call you? Is it put in a portal? Is it sent in an email? I'm not saying one's better than the other, but pick one. The nurses call in our clinic. That way it's the same no matter what. You don't have a doctor on the other end and now you know, oh no, it's, bad news, the doctor's calling. If it is your doctor and they call no matter what, this is not the great time to have a consult. I know you probably have a bunch of questions, you're emotional, you want to know why it didn't work. The phone call is not that, guys, because you're processing a lot and they have not looked through your whole chart. They have not. You are a result that came off. They've been taking care of other patients. They know you, but you want to give them the time to dig into the nitty gritty before they're on the fly giving your recommendations on the phone. So if your doctor calls and you have a bunch of questions, I would say, thank you so much for calling. I'd like to set up a follow-up appointment to go through some questions. That gives you time. To get out of the initial emotional shock and into the right mode to know what your questions are and remember them. And it gives your doctor the time to look back through your chart and see what they liked and what they didn't, and think about the whole picture and come up with the best next plan instead of this off the cuff plan because y'all were on the phone. And I know you have questions. So I'm just trying to give a tidbit that nobody's in the right place there. If your team is calling, whether it's a nurse or a doctor, that's not the time for why didn't it work? Should we change the protocol? What should we do next? What I want you to know, and this is going to vary based on how many embryos you have, what you've done before. If it's negative, then what? A lot of my patients, I'll say, hey, we have a good number of embryos. This is your first transfer. Not every transfer is going to work. If it is not successful, we're going to go into the next transfer. I'll make minor adjustments based on the protocol, but we're going to stick with this protocol. And if it's not successful, then we will meet and kind of go through the game plan. Of course, if you have limited embryos, you may want to meet with your doctor. That's totally fine. It will delay you. And that's okay. A few weeks of a delay is not a big deal for your peace of mind to know that you're doing the right thing in the right cycle. Medicine is collaborative. Your physician, your REI has gone through so much training. You should not ever go to them and say, I want this protocol. I want this test. I don't respond like, great, let me do that. Now, how they should respond is to say, well, these are good questions. Here's why I think this protocol is the best one for you. Or I'm glad you're asking about these tests This is why this one's indicated or this isn't. Sure, we can do this, but it's going to take longer or cost more money. Make sure you're having an open discussion. Don't discredit their education. In the same breath, I'm going to say, you've got to be an advocate for yourself. So you need to ask the questions. And you should have a care team where you can. And if you can't or nobody's ever answering them or explaining, that's also not a good relationship and you're going to have a lot of doubts. I have people who ask for things all the time, and I'll say, hey, I get it. Good job doing your research. I'm really glad you're taking ownership for this. But here's why we don't do the BCL-6 test. Here's why we don't do an ERA in your situation. Here's why I'm not going to do this. Sometimes I'll be neutral, and I'll say, hey, this test, no harm, no benefit. It's going to take you time and money, but if it's helpful for you, let's do it. Not everybody's going to be that way, but you should be able to have a discourse. And if you have questions, schedule a follow-up. That's when your doctor has time to go through the chart and really be able to answer things eloquently, trying to get a same-day phone call, trying to get it all in portal message, trying to get all an email or get all from the nurse. Often that will be frustrating for everybody involved. So know what's to come next if the transfer is negative, if it's positive, you're going to keep taking medications, friends. You're going to get HCG levels. You're going to get ultrasounds. And then you will be transitioned to your ob Everybody's a little different. Some clinics see you all the time. We don't. Pros and cons. You can make more money if you see people more. People have spent a lot of money and most people don't need it. So we see people at six and a half and eight and a half weeks. We draw your beta to make sure they're rising appropriately. If anything looks bad, we'll see you more. But there's clinics who will see people for five or six pregnancy ultrasounds. Your insurance is not going to cover five or six pregnancy ultrasounds. So that's a cash money out of your pocket. But that's okay too. But just know, hey, what's the standard here? When am I transitioning to my OB? You just want to be informed. Most people are going to pull you off medication around the nine to 10 week mark. And you got to trust the placenta. All right. So the take home here is that a lot of preparing for your FET is actually education and just knowledge knowing what to expect. Taking care of your body is really important, but I promise if there was magic sprinkled sauce you could take, we would tell you. Or things you absolutely shouldn't do, we would tell you. I want you to have success just as much as everybody. I'm going to answer a few of your fertility questions. You asked these on Monday on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. Some of them will be answered on Instagram, some of them on the podcast, and some in the newsletter. All right. How much does diet truly play a role in FET cycle? For the majority of people, exactly what you eat does not matter. Now, foods can cause inflammation, even in people who do not have food sensitivities. And foods can also be a source of toxins. So if you're having recurrent miscarriage, recurrent implantation failure, endometriosis, autoimmune disease, or PCOS, those are states where you might want to pay more attention to a low inflammatory diet. Things like whole foods, fruits and veggies. It doesn't mean you have to be gluten-free and dairy-free, but if you notice a sensitivity to them, yes. I recommend people if you do dairy, don't do low fat, do the real stuff. I am a believer that fruits and veggies are really what you need. So my favorite fertility diet is going to be to limit your meat. Meat, red meat, there's goods and bads, but we're going to group it together, has been associated with lower blast development and lower success rates with endometriosis patients. So let's say I like one serving of meat per day. Meatless Monday, so no meat on Monday. And of those servings of meat, only one time per week will it be red meat. That is going to force you to up your veggie intake significantly and your legume intake. And those things are very good for you. So, diet's not going to make or break it, but it's the whole picture. It's your whole body. So, especially if you have a diagnosis that is potentially on that inflammatory pathway, really think about a low inflammation diet throughout this process to try to just be as healthy as possible. How safe after my C-section is a safe to do another transfer. I want another baby ASAP. Every clinic is different and recommendations are different. What we like to do is we will do a transfer in the one year birth month from when you had your baby. That way your uterus has had at least an entire year to heal up. We do know that when the interpregnancy interval is closer together, especially if you've had a C-section, you do pose a certain increased risks or complications, and we don't want to put you through that. But your clinics are going to be different. So for my patients, I say, hey, if you want to go ASAP, reach out at the nine to 10 month mark postpartum. I want you to be done breastfeeding. And then we can look at doing the testing we need and getting everything lined up for a transfer to be at that 12 month mark if you want to proceed as fast as possible. I had a miscarriage after a genetically normal embryo. What test should I do? So, number one, I'm so sorry. Number two, this does happen. It's not common. It's much less common than miscarriage in untested embryos or in natural cycles. Most of the time, it still is the embryo, and that's just an important concept. 65% is not 100, and a lot of that is the embryo, meaning not every embryo, even if it's genetically normal, has the right cells to divide, doesn't make organs appropriately, doesn't have the right metabolism. So likely there's nothing you could have done differently. Now, depending on the stage of it, I often will make sure that the uterus is healed up appropriately after. So if you had to have a DNC or you took mesoprostol, do another saline sonogram, make sure the uterus is healed, that you didn't miss a septum or something else like that, or there's no scar tissue from the loss. Honestly, it depends on the full picture. Standard recommendations is nothing after one loss, but often you might have other losses in there. So things that can be considered could be thyroid screening, thyroid antibodies for autoimmune disease, checking for diabetes, checking for clotting disorders. Those are going to be more common things, but still ultimately uncommon. Most losses are still just unknown, random, and due to the embryo. Now, if you have endometriosis or potentially have endometriosis or adenomyosis, painful periods, pain with intercourse, might be something to talk to your doctor about because there might be a protocol that could be better in the next transfer. And the last question is how to remain positive after a failed transfer. It's all perspective. I'm not going to act like it's not hard because it is. Knowing that it's not always going to work, and knowing what you're going to do if you get that negative result really can help you the most. I usually tell patients, schedule something for yourself. Go get a massage. Go out to with friends. Do something for you because you need it and you deserve it. It's hard. It is a loss. It is not like a normal negative pregnancy test. It's a loss, and I treat it like such, and you should. If you've shared it with friends, call and tell somebody. Tell your mom, your sister, your best friend. Tell your partner, obviously. Be sad. Mourn it. Give yourself the space to grieve before you hop in. And then have that consult. Get into that mentality of let's do everything possible. I want to be educated. And if you're listening to this, you're doing one thing that you can, which is learning more about what to do. So remember that most people will get there. I know it feels really hard, but you're not alone. If you're in a room with... 35 to 40% of my patients, you're not by yourself. So just remember that. You're not alone. This is the walk we walk. Not every transfer is going to be successful. All right, friends, thank you so much. Again, Natalie Crawford, MD on Instagram. You can ask your questions. Hope you guys have a good one. Thanks, friends. Thank you all for listening to As a Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, and check out the YouTube channel Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman.